All right, so um, we are we are well into the discussion of the um, uh, literal grammatical method of interpreting scripture, which is the only one that works. All of the others kind of imply a meaning or impose a meaning on the text. This is the only one that digs into the text to find out what it says. It starts with the idea that scripture is inspired by God. It's based on that concept. It seems that none of the others are. Especially the liberal method, which was really designed to attack scripture. So we are into the principles. We talked about a couple of these already, but we'll review for context here. Um, these are the issues you need to be aware of as you interpret. When we finish the principles, we'll get into the procedure, the step-by-step -step process. So as you're going through the step-by-step -step process, these are things you need to keep in mind. Okay. <clears throat> the first one we saw was the priority of the original languages. Uh, the originals were the handwritten copies that's a contradiction in a handwritten copy. <laughs> it can't be an original copy. <laughs> the originals <laughs> were inspired, okay? Translations were not. And so if you want to understand what the original meant, you've got to go back to the original, okay? Uh, if, you want, if you want accuracy. Uh, we talked about the need for that in reference to idioms and figures of speech because they're not really translatable. Well, you can translate the words from one language into another, but you can't translate the meaning because idioms mean something different than they actually say. For example, as we discussed, take a chair. doesn't mean take a chair. It means sit down. So it means something different than it says. So you could translate the words, but you can't convey the meaning. I have to get back into the original. And I added here cultural issues as well because language and culture go together. <clears throat> I came up with an illustration for that. It's kind of a joke, I guess more of a riddle. Why did the scaredy cat cross the road? Because he was chicken. <laughs> now, you get that, right? <laughs> Because And what is that based on? It's based on the old vaudeville joke, why did the chicken cross the road? Okay, But if you translate that into another language, they could read it, but they're not going to get the joke because they don't have the cultural context. And it's the same with scripture. You know, If you don't get back into the original, you're not going to get the, the culture. Of course, there's more than just the language involved in that. And there are resources on the resource list to help you with the historical context and the cultural issues. <clears throat> also, grammar and syntax we talked about. You need to know the building blocks and how they go together to form sentences and ideas. Um, there are resources, again, for that. We talked about conditional sentences in Greek, and I gave you that chart last time, and, and we went over those just to illustrate if you don't understand these grammatical issues, you're not going to get the point the writer's trying to make. All right? Unfortunately, the chart that I gave you last week has a problem. <laughs> so I'm going to give you another one tonight. 
Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, so the old copy, that, the copy that you have, you know, you can toss it, use it for scratch paper, sell it on eBay, whatever you want. Um, but let me give you the updated one, and we'll go over that, and I'll explain the error. So the difficulty is that um, for the second class conditional in the construction column, I put a line in there. That line shouldn't be there because the example to the right is not an example of a negative. Okay. It's still a positive. All right. So I just removed that. Everything else is okay. The content is okay. It's just that line was in the wrong place. Also, um, <clears throat> in that discussion, um, Lula asked if there were practice sentences, <laughs> because we talked about the idea that you can kind of figure out which classification the conditional sentence is from the English, if you just kind of read it. <laughs> the context is important as well. So I came up with some, some practice sentences for you. You don't have to do this, obviously. You're not being graded, but... Uh... <laughs> well, we can do that if you So we'll go over these so you understand how this little exercise works. Uh, down the left you have the uh, verse uh, designations there and then the, I copied the text from the New American Standard in the middle. And then the column to the right is where you're going to write in whether this is a first class conditional, a second class, a third class, or a fourth class. So all you have to do is put in there a one, two, three, or four. Okay. Now I put in I put two of each for each class, two first class conditionals, two second class, two third class, only one fourth class because I couldn't find an adequate, another adequate example for this exercise. Okay. 
So you have the chart with you to, to tell you what these are, um, to tell you what the classifications are, so you can compare as you read these English um, verses. I would suggest that you read the context, the whole, like, like John 5.46, uh, Jesus is being confronted by the Pharisees. He's called God his Father, made himself equal with God, and so they want to stone him for blasphemy. <clears throat> so he's way back at the beginning of the chapter. So he gives all kinds of evidence that he is who he says he is. He starts by referring to the miracles that he's done. They show that he's God. He, John the Baptist was a witness to him. The Father was a witness to him at his baptism. So he goes on. He finally gets down to Moses. And, of course, the Pharisees were the lawyers. They were the experts in the law of Moses. They knew that law inside and out. And he says to them, If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. Okay. Uh, Deuteronomy, is it chapter 18? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so Moses wrote that God would raise up a prophet like him. Okay. And if you remember Luke 24, Jesus explained to the two guys on the road to Emmaus, from Moses on through the rest of the scriptures, he showed how the Old Testament said that the Messiah had to suffer and die. So you want to go back to get the context of what's happening here. That'll help you decipher what uh, conditionals these are. So we're not going to do this right now. This is homework. Okay. <laughs> and to next week we'll go over this. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And next week we'll go over this. So any questions about how that works? <clears throat> okay. So, um, you have resource, the resource list for language helps, as well as context. And this is the chart that, that we just looked at on the, the conditional statements. And again, the conditional statements are the if clauses. If this is true, then this is true. We got into the accommodation of Revelation last time a little bit. That's an objective genitive. God accommodated revelation. He dumbed it down so we could understand it. Okay. Um, so God reveals only what we can understand. So revelation is limited, but it's still true. <laughs> the Deuteronomy 29, 29 says the secret things belong to God. He didn't reveal everything to us. But what he did reveal is still his word. It's still inspired. 2 Timothy 3.16 All scripture is inspired by God. So what we have is reliable. What we have is authoritative. Right? And it's written in forms we can understand. <clears throat> Well, the word can is the, <laughs> the operative word there. So, so essentially, what you're saying is that God reveals only what the smartest among us can understand <laughs> and explains the rest of us. 
couple things that work there. One, of course, is the Holy Spirit. The other is your subconscious mind. <laughs> your subconscious mind wants things to make sense. Okay. And we talked, was it last year? Earlier this year? I gave you that method for overcoming confusion. Remember that? Some of you were here, some of you were not here. Yeah. I won't go through the whole thing again when I have time, but it's a lecture I used to give to my writing students because I knew they weren't going to get it. <laughs> From experience, I knew it. So I, this is what you do when I teach you something and you don't understand it. This is how to go about clarifying it. Your subconscious mind wants things to make sense. So you have to do two things. You have to give it the information to work with and then you have to leave it alone <laughs> to let it work. So you just cram the information in there as much as you can. Whatever it is you don't understand or that is confusing, just go over it and over it and over it until you get to the point where you think, if I have to do this one more time, I'm going to die. Then you quit. And you go do something else, spank the kids or whatever. And get your, get your mind off of whatever it was you're trying to understand. And you'll be surprised. Sooner or later, when you least expect it, the light will go on and you'll think, oh, now I get it. <laughs> you know, and the more you do that, the sooner that happens. Okay? So when you read the scripture that you don't understand over and over and over, your subconscious mind is activated. How do you distinguish between what your subconscious mind tells you and what this, the Holy Spirit tells you? Consistency. <laughs> Compare what that light bulb moment, you know, you're, oh, I get it now. Well, check, double check, does it match with what the rest of the scripture says? Okay, because the Holy Spirit isn't going to reveal something to you that is not consistent. Your subconscious mind might. <laughs> it's trying to be helpful, but it's not infallible. What's the number one for? <clears throat> because there are more slides. This is the first. Okay. But I, I would... Um to your points, revelation is limited. Um, so, as an example, when the Old Testament prophets were given prophecies about the Messiah, they were given what they were given, but they didn't have all the details. Yeah. And so that's why when Peter says they searched the scriptures trying to understand um, who the person and the timing was going to be, and they, that, that's the part they couldn't understand. They didn't know exactly when that would happen because it had not been revealed in detail. Mm -hmm. And, and I, for us, I mean, we have the full revelation of God, and yet it's still limited. When we look at the book of Revelation, the book of Revelation speaks a lot about what's going to happen at the end times. Uh, but I don't know anyone who clearly understands <laughs> yeah. all the, how all that is going to look, what all that means. We, we just have a sense of what's going to happen, and we know that that's, that's the end. We can see that there are judgments. We can see that Jesus is going to return. We can see that there's uh, you know, there's the lake of fire and all, all that. So, I mean, I think the flow is, um, is, is we can follow that. But a lot of the references, um, the bird in the sky, and things like that, I mean, those are... Those are things that I think to us are going to be a mystery until they actually happen. You know, but but when it happens, we're going to be able to look at that and say, 
Oh, that's what just tries to be helpful. Yeah, it <laughs> Sometimes it gets in the way. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's why <clears throat> Sherlock Holmes was a great detective, but he had a lot of gaps in his knowledge because he learned only the things that would help him in his detective work. He didn't bother with anything else, you know. He said, why clutter up your mind with irrelevant information? <laughs> That's one way to stop those things from coming back. You know, so don't put them in there to begin with. That's why you had to have that Yeah. <laughs> That's why specialists are so valuable. Because specialists, they just focus on that field. Right. right. Yeah. right. And they end up being better in their field than anyone else because they spend so much time just focusing on yeah. Right. Yeah. So God uses language we can understand. 
he puts things in forms we can understand. So we have to allow for things like literary genres. Genre is just a type of literature. And literary devices. Okay, we talked about this a little bit last time. The different genres that we find in scripture, we have the law, we have history, prophecy, poetry, all the rest. You have to approach each of these differently. You know, you, you can't interpret a poem the same way you interpret history because poetry works differently than history does. Uh, we're not gonna take time to go through all of those and what you have to do to interpret each of those genres because that's a series all in itself. <laughs> That's going to slow us down in getting through our overall how to interpret scripture thing. But we need to be aware of those things. Uh, you need to know the differences. And then um, the literary devices, like poetic parallelism, uh, chiasms, and uh, we're going to review some of that. We, we looked at Jude 6 for parallelism. Uh, it starts out by saying that the angels, you know, who left their, King James says, first estate, New American Standard says their domain, ESV says their uh, proper area of authority, I think. Of uh, Yeah, I think it's authority. All of those translations go back to that one word, arche, which means, really means the first or old things, archaeology is a study of old things. And from that is derived the meaning of being in charge or ruling. Because the one who's there first sets the rules <laughs> for everybody else. So it can mean to rule, okay? That's where we get the idea of authority or domain. <clears throat> it's translated that way. And people, especially uh, from the King James, their first estate assumed that that meant that they stopped being angels or stopped acting like angels. And they associate that with verse 7, which talks about indulging in gross immorality. And they take us back to Genesis 6 with the, and the sons of God and the, and the daughters of men and, the, and all of that stuff. But it doesn't mean that. <laughs> if you look at the parallelism in Jude 6, it says there they left their first estate or their domain the rest of it says, and abandon their proper abode, or the King James says their habitation. I forget what the ESV says, but it's along the same lines. Proper dwelling. Proper dwelling, yeah. So what is an abode? What is a habitation? That's where you live. That's parallel with domain. And so domain has to mean where you live. So you look at the parallelism, the way the words, the the statements are structured and it gives you insight into what it's talking about. So parallelism is one of those literary devices. It had literary devices have to do with how the things are arranged on the page. Okay. <clears throat> so you have to start thinking structurally. Instead of trying to understand what the words say, look at how they're on the page. We talked about chiasms. We have this one still on the board from last week, and I put I made it into a slide. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, to finish up this discussion, you want to look at the arrangement of the words and how the words relate within that arrangement. It's like looking at a picture and how it's composed. You have a text here, but instead of looking at the words, look at it the way an artist would look at a picture. <laughs> 
How are the words arranged on the page? That gets you into the literary devices. And this is sort of verging or, is that the right word? It's not the right word. It's sort of borderline with poetry. Because poetry, a lot of poetry deals with how things appear on the page. Well, in the Bible we have a lot of that stuff going on. So you have to look structurally. And that can help you understand the content or the meaning. <clears throat> An example flashed through my, my head and I forgot to plug the other ear. So it's, so it's gone. <laughs> It may come back. Oh, I know what I was going to say. Uh, it is possible to blend prose and poetry. Prose is just like regular writing, like history or whatever. Poetry is poetry. So it's possible to write prose in a very poetic way. Henry David Thoreau did this in his, his book on Walden Pond. You know, he spent two years living out there in the cabin all by himself just to face life at the, the basic level, you know, what life is all about. He cheated a little bit here and there, now and then. <laughs> but that is ostensibly why he was there. And his book, uh, is called Walden, is a combination, it's very poetic, it's prose, but it's very poetic. A lot of imagery in there and symbolism and stuff like that. So it's possible to combine the two, okay? And that happens in Scripture, especially uh, the Old Testament. Um, I would just uh, one one to point out though, we we talked a little about the um, creation count, Genesis. We, we take that as a literal six-day creation count. There, there's a sense in which um, this, uh, you know, the structures, or at least um, the, the portrayal of these structures, can be abused because a lot of people will say that Genesis one is poetry. Um, and the reason why they would want to emphasize that it's poetry is to say that that's not meant to be taken literally. Mm -hmm. You know, so like when you read poetry, you understand that poetry uses a lot of imagery, and and, um, and and the grammar is not meant to be perfect, but it's meant to be structured in a way to, to kind of give it an artistic kind of expression. And then they would say, well, that's what Genesis is. It's just poetry. It's not meant to be taken literally. But if you um, would study what even Hebrew linguists um, would say, and, and these are people that are not necessarily they, they may not necessarily believe in the Bible. They may not even be Christians or Jews or whatever. They're just, they're just, um, they're, they're people who are experts at understanding the Hebrew language of that, of that time. Um, all the best linguists of that time would look at it and say there is no resemblance to what Hebrew poetry would look like. Um, so when you when you look at the scholars and say, oh, that's not poetry. It's it's, it's narrative. It's it's prose. Um, and, and so it's, so this is where sometimes um, the arguments for whether something is poetry or not, in particular in the Old Testament, can can be abused and you want to be sure that you understand what, what the scholars actually say rather than someone who is starting with a certain theology and trying to read that theology mm -hmm. into the text. All right. Good point. So I put this key out in the head and board last week onto this slide and dress it up a little bit. Um, and again, I found this just last week. How many times have I read 1 Corinthians? <laughs> I never saw this. <laughs> until last week when I was getting ready for last Wednesday night. The end of chapter 12 is the first half of a chiasm, and the beginning of chapter 14 is the second half of that chiasm. Um, and we talked about chiasms based on the, the letter chi in, in Greek, which looks like an X, but it's not really an X. It is on the slide because I 
don't have the <laughs> access of the Greek there. <laughs> um, although I might, I have to check. I just thought I might have. Anyway, uh, on the slide to the left, you have the quotes from these verses. In the middle, you have the diagram to show how it's structured. In the right, you have an explanation. Okay. So this is kind of taking what we did last week and filling it out a little bit. So, again, context. Chapter 12, he talks about spiritual gifts and the gifts that there are and what they're used for and the fact that they are all necessary because the, the Corinthians, all through the book, had this terrible habit of trying to prove that each one is trying to prove they're better than everybody else. <laughs> and every problem that Paul addresses in the church goes back to that attitude. Okay? And so here was spiritual gifts, and they were saying, well, you know, my gift is better than yours. And Paul is saying in chapter 12, no, they're all necessary. You can't make one more important than the other. <clears throat> and uh, plus he starts out by saying, hey, God gave you the gift. It wasn't your choice. <laughs> you shouldn't brag about something that God gave you. And he says that somewhere else as well. If you receive this, you know, why are you bragging about it? Then in chapter 13, he gets into the concept of love because chapter 12 ends, it says right here in the quote, it says, but earnestly desire the greater gifts and I show you a still more excellent way. That leads into chapter 13, which is about love. That more excellent way is love. So chapter 13 is all about the attitude or the motivation for using the gifts. And he says that's much more important than the gifts themselves. So you guys are way off base. So, um, many times in Paul's writings, he puts parentheses mm -hmm. in there. And would you say that chapter 13 is a parenthetical um, insert, if you will? No, it's too much for, parent for parentheses. <laughs> it's part of the discussion. He, he's, you know, they need to know this. So he, it's, a, it's an intended part of his, his explanation. It's not, oh, by the way. Um, it just interrupts his discussion of spiritual gifts. So he gets to the point at the end of chapter 12 where he shifts into the motivation. And then at the end of chapter 13, actually the beginning of chapter 14, he gets back into spiritual gifts as we have the quote there on the left again down there in the corner uh, it says pursue love that's what he talked about in 13 he says but desire earnest, uh, earnestly desire spiritual gifts that's what 14 is going to be about so is if you know what chiasms are like you can recognize them in scripture and this literary device this organization emphasizes the outer elements in this case, the spiritual gifts. That's where he started and that's where he finished. So it's the first thing you see, it's the last thing you see. So it's what you're gonna remember most. And the middle elements are kind of like what holds those together. Okay. <clears throat> so the first half of that chiasm is in chapter 12 at the end and the, the second half is at the, the beginning of chapter 14. Very odd to split a chiasm like that. We have another chiasm. I mentioned we we're going to go back to Second Timothy 
um, you remember, you've memorized the verse, all scripture is inspired by God and it is profitable for what? Teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. Teaching and training in righteousness, the first and the last, are the same thing. That's the A part. Reproof and correction are the same thing. That's the B part. So we have a chiasm there in in 2 Timothy 3.16. And again, the emphasis is always on the outer elements. <clears throat> so the writer will arrange things on the page in such a way to make a, a point, to add emphasis to what he's talking about. 3.16. Okay, so... At the end of chapter 12, Paul is finished saying what he wanted to say about spiritual gifts up to that point. And then he shifts into what he's going to talk about in chapter 13. And then after he's talked about that, he shifts back to his discussion of spiritual gifts in chapter 14. And chapter 14 basically shows them how to apply what he told them in chapters 12 and 13. <laughs> because they were using the gifts all wrong for the wrong reasons and all of that stuff. Yeah, and you see the focus in chapter 14, the word that shows up over and over again is edifying, build up, yeah. edifying, build up. Yeah, especially uh, verse 26. He says, the, all, all the gifts were given for edification, so that's got to be your focus. <laughs> Don't get carried away with all this spectacular stuff. <laughs> Which takes us back to the end of chapter 12. It's almost a contradiction. He had just told them in chapter 12, that all the gifts are essential. They're all necessary. But then he says, but earnestly desire the greater gifts. You just told them there were no greater gifts. <laughs> you just told them they're all equal. They're all necessary. But he explains that in chapter 14, what he means by the greater gifts. Those are the ones that are focused on edification, like teaching and preaching and prophecy and stuff like that. <clears throat> and he explains why that's more important than the other uh, other things in chapter 14. Well, we're, we've got just a couple minutes left. So, were they um, thinking that they were edifying themselves with greater gifts by having greater gifts? Or was he teaching them that? I don't think they were they thinking. Of, they weren't thinking of edification. No, <laughs> not at yeah, all. I think I think what happens is that 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 they're that they're wanting to well they're just naturally wanting to edify themselves. That's what I was yeah. wondering. Yeah. He's I mean, teaching them no 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 that's right. not what you're supposed to be doing. Yeah. That's that's what the world does, right? So the world wants to celebrate uh, the individual. Wants to look what I can do, look what I can do. And so uh, Paul is even talking about you know when you're speaking in tongues, you're speaking to no one but but God. Then no one can understand you. And, uh, and even if you pray, you know, if you to pray in tongues, you're only edifying yourself. You know, the idea there is that you're, you're really just building up yourself. Yeah, mm -hmm. in, in order, yeah, look at me, look at what, what I can do. Yeah. Um, when church is really about edifying one another. And that's why Paul will ultimately say, I would rather speak five words with my mind than a thousand mm -hmm. in tongue. Um, right. Because building one another up is far superior than just simply making yourself look good. Yeah, the greater gifts, according to the Corinthians, were those spectacular ones, like speaking in tongues, miracles, healing, stuff like that. So, you know, I can speak in tongues. 
<laughs> you can't, therefore, yeah, I'm better than you. The, this is the irony of the, yeah. uh, the, the Pentecostal and charismatic yeah. movements, is that um, they put so much emphasis on these supernatural gifts, and obviously 1 Corinthians would be kind of their go-to place to kind of show, yeah, that these things are so. But when you look at it in context, Paul is trying to say, no, this is, this is not to be prioritized. This right. is not where your priority is. Yeah, you, you may have those gifts, but the priority is to be upon building one another up. And then even when we get further into Ephesians, Ephesians 5.18, Paul says, you know, do, do not be drunk with wine that is dissipation, be filled by the Spirit. And what is it be, to be filled by the Spirit? Well, it, it's to be, be in, in a mood of thanksgiving and, and singing praise and, and to help you know, edifying one another, loving one another. He never gets into the supernatural elements right. of, you know, that people like to emphasize. Galatians 5, walk by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Well, what does it mean to walk by the Spirit? Well, he lists the fruits of the Spirit, right? And the fruit of the Spirit have nothing to do with all these supernatural, ecstatic kind of experience that people often pursue. Right. So this is one of those things where when you understand it in context, you see that, okay, I'm not going to stand against anyone that says they're a modern-day prophet or this and that and whatnot, but, but they're, they're, what I see in churches today is that there is a that there is an unbiblical emphasis and priority upon those gifts alone um, to the absence of just understanding scripture. You know, which is why when people come and say, well, this is not a spirit-led church, this is not a spirit-filled church, they'll say that for churches that just teach the Bible. And, and my argument would be, well, biblically, this is actually more spirit-led and spirit-filled. Mm -hmm. than church, would argue. Right. Because we're, we're, actually, we're actually teaching what the Holy Spirit has provided us. Yeah, they were so they were elevating those spectacular gifts, and Paul says, "No, it's more important to edify." So when he says greater gifts, he's not contradicting himself; he's refocusing their attention. <laughs> you know, yeah, you need to work on edification, not hocus pocus. <clears throat> well, we're out of time. Any other observations, comments? Okay, so we'll pick up there next time and get into um, another um, literary device, actually a couple of more, from 1 Corinthians 13, verses 8 to 12. Okay, you might want to read ahead for that. Um, but Paul, uh, again, arranges things in a particular order. Okay, and it causes a lot of controversy. Okay, we're, we started talking about that with the charismatic movement and stuff. They get a lot of ammunition. And people who oppose the charismatic movement get information from, from verses 8 to, 8 to 12, but I think incorrectly so. Yeah. 1 Corinthians 8 to 12. Yeah. Chapter 13, verses 8 to 12. Yeah, so we'll get into another literary device or two. <laughs> yeah. All right, let's uh, close in prayer.